Now you will notice we're looking at the structure of the rest of the first chapter of Colossians, verses 13 to 29, a large overview. But let me comment by way of introduction that we are entering into some of the most profound material in the whole Bible. Its challenge will be equal to its wonder, its depth, its richness, even as its wonder, its depth, its richness draws us with the Colossian Christians into the deep, rich wonder of the person and work of the beloved Son of God, his loving Father, and the seal of that love, the indwelling Holy Spirit. What is revealed to us here through the pen of the inspired apostle is a disclosure of the heart and mind of God triune. Here are heaped upon us treasures, deep, rich treasures, treasures of our redemption, our resurrection, our glorification, our semi-eschatological life existing in union with the eschatological redemption, the eschatological resurrection, the eschatological glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there is a singular uniqueness, if there is a singular uniqueness to what the inspired apostle discloses about our beloved Savior, it is due to the singular and unique experience of that same inspired apostle on the road to Damascus, in the deserts of Arabia, Galatians 1.7, as he was caught up into the third heaven, the very paradise of God, 2 Corinthians 12.1-4. We are in the vicinity of profundity, which is virtually beyond imagination here. It is that narrative biographical experience of God's self-disclosure to Paul and Paul's reception of it that now he writes to us as he wrote to the Colossians. Rights of the surpassing excellence of the central person of the Godhead, God the Son centered between God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The central person of the Godhead who is the central person in our narrative biography. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. In this lengthy section of chapter 1, we meet our darkness deliverer, our sin forgiver, our new creator, our ecclesiastical head, our firstborn from the dead, our peacemaker, our death breaker, our sin sufferer, our age-old mysteries revealer, our completer, our hope of glory. Here is an unrolling scroll of an embarrassment of riches, a superabundance of treasures innumerable, gifts overflowing, experiences sweet and joyful, even in their uniqueness, even in their singularity, even in the Colossians' unique and singular need to receive this revelation, to receive this self-disclosure of the heart and mind of God in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, And we 21st century Christians, we are co-beneficiaries with those Colossian Christians of old. There is no place else where Paul speaks of these things. There is no place else in the Bible where these things are, are recorded. This is a unique and singular 
dimension of God's revelation to the Colossian church and to his church today through the written word of the inspired apostle. Now, we are going to spend most of our time today discussing the structure of the rest of chapter 1. This may seem like a tedious process, which is not all that meaningful to you, and you may consider it just one of Denison's idiosyncrasies because it's meaningful to him. I ask you to suspend judgment and leave me out of the equation and watch what the text records. When you pause to think about it, you will realize that if there is a structure to the rest of chapter 1, as we have already noted the structure to the prescript, verses 1 and 2, and the thanksgiving, verses 3 to 12, if there is a structure to the rest of chapter 1, then it is because Paul wrote it that way. The Holy Spirit inspired it that way. And the triune God wants you and me to notice it this way for our edification and for our being drawn into the experience of the Apostle and the Colossian believers. That is to say, the structure of Paul's teaching here is as important as the teaching itself. In fact, the structure provides us with the order of the teaching. If you will, the structure provides us with the logic of the inspired apostle's mind as he thinks his thoughts and as he records them as they flow from his inspired mind, the message which comes out of his pen, a result of his own thinking about what has been revealed to him, unpacking in his own words the wonderful message of the truth of the gospel to the Colossian Christians as he's already referred to it in this first chapter. The order or structure of the apostle's mind is as the order and structure of God's mind. To determine the structure is to determine the mind and heart of God himself. To understand the structure is to understand the mind and heart of God himself. God reveals himself to us in the structure of his words as he reveals himself to us in the message of his words. They are inseparable. They go together because he inspired it that way. All right, now, to the work of determining the structure of the rest of this chapter from 13 to 29. Now, we're going to notice the language of inception. What's the word inception mean? Anyone? Beginning, yes, that which begins. So what begins the verses or what begins the units or the sections is what we want to focus on. The first word in a verse or the first words in a verse, but those initial or inceptive words in the Greek text of the verse, which indicates points of structural inception. After all, Paul wrote it in Greek, and therefore, if we're going to determine if there is a structure, we want to look at the Greek text. Now, I don't mean to overwhelm you with this, but I want you to see the Greek text so that you can see the patterning. And we'll explain as we go uh, <clears throat> what those uh, Greek words mean. All right, begin, excuse me, beginning with verse 13. In your English version, as you look at the passage, most of your English versions read, He rescued us. And we want to ask the question, what part of speech is that he word in verse 13? What do we label that? 
It is a pronoun. Okay? What kind of a pronoun is it? It is a personal pronoun. All right? So the he pronoun is a personal pronoun, referring to a person. He, she, it, they. <clears throat> Those are personal pronouns. Now, notice the Greek word which is at the beginning of verse 13. It is pronounced hos. It is not a personal pronoun. It should be translated who, as the King James Version long ago did translate it. The first word then in verse 13 is not for he, because there's not no for in the Greek text either. I'm reading from the New American Standard, so I'm taking my pot shots in the NASB here. There's no for in the text, and there's no he in the text. There's a who in the text. Now, that is also a pronoun. Is who a personal pronoun? It is a relative pronoun. It is not a personal pronoun. It is a relative pronoun. It is a pronoun which you use to talk about your relatives. Who, whom, which, etc. Those are relative pronouns. Now, once again, I underscore the fact that the King James Version translates this verse correctly. <clears throat> no for, no he, simply who rescued us. And that's how it should read, literally. And this is important for us. Uh, I'm not quibbling that the who uh, is equal to a he, but we would then have to ask the question about the antecedent of the pronoun, and I don't want to get into that because I don't want to overwhelm you with antecedents and pronouns just yet. We'll, okay, we'll talk about that grammatical point next time when we tear apart verses 13 and 14. We're not going to tear any verses apart today. We want to look at how it's all put together. <clears throat> all right, so <clears throat> relative pronoun first, not personal pronoun. Translation in all the English versions should actually be who, not he. All right, now why am I making a big deal of this? Because when we come to verse 15, you'll notice that you see the very same inceptive or initial or beginning word as we saw in verse 13. Hos, followed by the verb, which is part of the verb to be esten, it's pronounced hos, esten. And now you know what hos means. What does it mean? You've learned it. What does it mean? Who. So you translate hos Esten, who is? And once again, notice in your English translations, verse 15 in the New American Standard says, he is. That's not how you translate host. It is how you translate Esten. But host does not mean he. Host means who. Go ahead, Kay. Are you saying who or whom? No, who. Not, not the accusative or not the direct object. Not the object, the object of a verb would be whom, okay? So who, W-H-O. That's what I Whom is a relative pronoun, but it doesn't occur in these. This is the nominative case. All right, so notice the similarity, okay? Verse 13 begins with a relative pronoun, which we translate who, Verse 15 begins with a relative pronoun, which we translate who? They are symmetrical. Paul did this intentionally. This is a pattern of structuring his argument, structuring his thought process. All right. You okay with me? My, my, Grant, Grant, I'm the idiosyncratic guy up here. I admit that. I'll, I can take all that. But are you okay? You're following the points here. We're talking about how the Greek is patterned as it came from Paul's pen and what the implications of that are. We haven't spelled out those implications yet, but we'll get to it. If you feel like you're underwater, uh, yes, raise your hand. Uh, in verse 14, yes. yes, it is translated as, it, it, that is accurately translated, okay? So they did get that one right. 
It is the relative pronoun in the Greek. I won't confuse you with transliterating it. I'll just let it say that it, that is the relative in the Greek text. But good question and good observation. All right, now, next point. Verse 15 contains a unique word. As you look at that verse, what's the unique word or, or uh, combination of words that jumps out at you there? Marge? Firstborn. Yes. All right. Now, glance down the verses that follow and see if you find that same phrase elsewhere. Marge? It is in verse 18. All right. So, we have a replication or a duplication of this very unique word, firstborn, in verse 15, and once again in verse 18, or actually I'm going to say on the basis of your English versions, it's in verse 18b, because it appears after he is also head of the body of the church, which in my opinion should be attached to verse 17, but I'll make that case in a different way. All right, so we'll say verse 18b has this very same word, firstborn, which appears initially in verse 15. All right, in your English translation, what appears before firstborn? And before that? Subject and verb. You're doing well, Ben. He is. He is. is. Okay? The English versions translate the phrase there in the Greek by he is. Even as they've translated it, he is in verse 13 and in verse 15. In other words, this is the host Eston phrase again, which precedes firstborn in verse 18b and should be translated who is. So, in your English version, verse 13 should be who rescued us, hosts. Verse 15 should be who is the image, host Eston. And verse 18b should begin who is host Eston, the begin, who is the firstborn or the beginning from the dead. You see the pattern. And that's placed there in your outline, verse 15 has host Eston plus firstborn. Verse 18b has host Eston plus firstborn. Each time the host Eston means who is, not he is. And firstborn in Greek is prototakos. And what is after it in verse 15? He's the firstborn of what in verse 15? Creation. And he's firstborn of what in verse 18b? Yes, from the dead. So let's let's make it sound like creation. Let's make it assonantial. Resurrection. Firstborn of resurrection. Firstborn of creation. Firstborn of resurrection. All right, well, there, there are the two patterns. What does this suggest about the two patterns? That verse 15 begins exactly as verse 18b begins. Verse 15 follows with a unique word, prototakos. As verse 18b follows with a, uh, a unique word, prototakos, what does this suggest? There are two parallel units here. 
There are two intentional symmetries here. If he repeats the exact same pattern, he is doing something on purpose. He has purposely used recursion or repetition for his message. Observe how Paul uses symmetrical inception. Verse 15 and 18b begin the same way, complemented by symmetry of vocabulary. Firstborn follows the beginning, the inceptions. But also, he has duplication of all things several times in both of these units. We didn't point all those out, but you can count them up as you examine verses 16 through 20. But notice one other very fascinating feature. In verse 16, what does he say about all things being created in him? All things where? Heavens and earth. Heavens and earth. Now, look down at verse 20. Do you see that phrase again? You see it again, Ben? But what do you see about it? It is reversed. And what do you call that? A, B, B prime, A prime. What do we call that? It is a chiasm. All right, so notice the chiastic reversal there, which suggests, does it not, that the first unit opens with a phrase, heavens and earth, and the last verse of this unit closes with a phrase, earth and heavens in reverse parallel, in order tying these two units together. It's not only the inceptive vocabulary, that which begins 15 and 18b, it's what ties them together by that phrase, heavens and earth and earth and heavens. He didn't forget that he had written heavens and earth first in verse 16 when he came to verse 20. He reversed it in order to give you a clue as to what he's pinning together. He's pinning this section together. It has two sections, but he's pinning the whole together. Verses 15 to 20 are a unit composed of two subunits. See, my idiosyncratic approach is not madness. It is attempting to unpack the apostles' brilliance. Yes, inspired brilliance under the power of the Holy Spirit, but it is there. And even the English translations in this case don't mess around with it and they don't mess it up. They leave it there for the chiasm to jump out at you. All right, we praise God for chiasms too. Now, where does this unit... That is what we've been looking at, verses 15 and 18. Where does this unit end and the next unit begin? Well, I, I think it ends at 23, begins at 24, because he starts talking about himself. The it ends in 23. Okay. <laughs> Where, where does what ends at 23 begin? Are you saying it begins in 18b? No, I thought it began in 15. Alright, well we have two units, right? When we start with 15, and then we start again with the same repetition in 18b. So where does the section 18b end? So you're making it smaller units, okay. Okay. All right, well, you, you are right about verse 23 being the end of the next unit, but where does it begin? What was the verse? Somebody Was somebody saying something? I'm sorry. No, okay. Don't, don't worry if you venture an answer. 
It can only be wrong, in which case you'll learn that the right one will be better. All right, so what did I just say about the bracket between heavens and earth and earth and heavens? And where did earth and heavens occur? Art? Where does earth and heavens occur? Verse 16 and Verse 20 is where the earth and heavens occurs, and that was the closure to what opened with heavens and earth in verse 16. All right, so that closes off that unit. So verse 20 is the end of that unit. So verse 21 begins the next unit, which Kay has already told us is going to end in verse 23. But how do we know that that's where the next unit begins? Not only because of the closure to the previous unit, but also because of the post-positive personal pronoun. How so? Notice in your English version that you have a phrase something like this, and although you. Now, once again, the New American Standard places a word in there that's not in the Greek. The word although does not appear. The the two Greek words that begin that verse are kai humos, which I've transliterated for you, in your outline. Kai is the Greek word for and. Humos is the personal pronoun you. And post-positive means that the pronoun is in the position after the positive first word in the verse. Okay? So the first word in a Greek verse is the positive position. After that is post-positive, following the positive position of the first word the second word, humos, is in that place in the verse. And it would be properly interpreted in English or translated in English, as the New American Standard does, though it sticks a word in there that's not in the Greek text, and you, and you, with a post-positive personal pronoun, you. All right, now Kay told us that this unit ends in verse 23, and she is correct. So the next unit is going to begin where? If the net, if, if 21 ends in 23, if that unit is 21 to 23, where's the next unit going to begin? 24, right? We're looking at inceptions, okay? Now what do we find here in verse 24? Look at your English translation. Most of your English translations read, now I, correct? What position is the I in? What what part of speech is the I? It is a pronoun. Was you a pronoun up above in 21? Yes, you is a pronoun up in 21. I is a pronoun here in 24. What position is it in in the verse? Even in your English translation. It's in the post-positive position, correct. Only this time, it comes out of the verb. Not standing alone as a preposition as humos did in verse 21. So, the post-positive personal pronoun in verse 24 is I... From nun Cairo, which means now I rejoice, and the I is in the long O or the omega at the end of the second word there, Cairo. Now look at verse 29. And what pronoun is present in verse 29? I once again. Now, it's not in a post-positive position here. It follows the conjunction and, chi, chi means and, chi, copio, which means and I labor. But notice at the beginning of this section, verse 24, the I pronoun is prominent in the post-positive position. At the end of this unit, the I pronoun is prominent. At the last verse, of this chapter, verse 29, the personal pronoun I is also present. 
All right, now, we want to assess what we've done by summing up how many units we have distinguished. All right, we're looking at the symmetry of breaking down the units of the structure of the rest of chapter 1 from 13 to 29, and we looked at those units in terms of the inceptive vocabulary in the Greek text, which signals a shift or a new unit arising. How many units do we have to date? How So far, how many units have we noticed? What's the first one? Yes. How far does the first unit reach, Marge? 13 and 14. There's the first unit. Okay. Next. When's the next unit begin? Fifteen to eighteen A. Let's make it eighteen A. There's the second unit. Third unit begins with eighteen B and extends to twenty. Very good. Okay, so we're up to three units. Okay. Next unit. Okay. Oh, he's showing you. <laughs> he's cheating. I'm trying to get my attention. <laughs> Quit being ahead of us, Bob. <laughs> I was giving K this one because she's the one that nailed it for where it ends. It begins where, K? 21 and extends to 20. 23, correct. All right, so the next unit, the fourth unit, is 21 to 24, 23 rather, and the last unit, of course, begins at 24 and extends to 29. We've distinguished five structural units in this uh, ending first part, the ending part of the first chapter. Are you with me? Yes. After the first position. So, in the case of Kai Umas, which is there in verse 21, rather, Kai Umas, the, the positive position is Kai, and, in English. After the positive position, post-positive. Post means after. Okay, Post-positive is Umas, the pronoun, you. And we're noting that it is the same pattern in verse 21 as in verse 24, where the personal pronoun I is in the post-positive position in the Greek text. So we have two, two sections, 21 to 23 and 24 to 29, that begin inception. They begin with a pronoun in the post-positive position. And that's the pattern by which we distinguish the apostles' structuring of the units. All right, now, justification for what we've observed. To the next page of your handout, other considerations which actually reinforce what we've already pointed out. First of all, in verses 13 to 14, we have a pronoun which dominates or is used more often than any other type of pronoun. And that is the relative pronoun in contrast to the third person personal pronoun. You've already noted that we've already noted that the first part the first word in verse 13 should be translated who, the relative pronoun, hos in Greek. Whom appears in verse 14. It's, it's ho in Greek. So there are two uses of the relative pronoun in verses 13 to 14. There is only one use of the third person personal pronoun. And it is his in verse 13. Now, you will argue <coughs> that uh, 
You might, you might point out that there are several us's and we's in that verse, in those two verses. There's actually only one. The others are found in the, the verb. The we is in the verb itself. And the other use of us is inserted for ease of reading by the translators. But it's not in the Greek text. All right, so what's my point? My point is that we note that verse 13 begins with a relative pronoun, and the most common pronoun in this section is the relative pronoun, which occurs twice. It does not occur with that frequency in any other of the units that we've isolated. So then, what pronouns are used in the other units? Let's take a look at verses 15 to 18a. There is a dominant pronoun that occurs in that section, and as you scan those verses, can you tell me what it is? Verses 15 to 18a, what is the pronoun that you keep seeing more often than any other? He and him. Very good. It occurs six times in this unit. What about verses 18b to 20? What pronoun jumps out at you in this section? He and him again, six times once again. Notice the symmetry. The apostle uses the personal pronouns he and him six times in both of those units, further confirming the fact that we have identified the subunit structures of that larger section 15 to 20. All right, now, we're almost at the end of this tedium. Patience, patience. Verses 21 to 23, what dominant pronoun do you find there? You, very good, four times, twice in the verbs in verse 23, but that is the dominant pronoun. Remember, it began, the, the section in verse 21, with the post-positive you, and it dominates those three verses, 21 to 23. And finally, verses 24 to 29, as you scan those verses, what pronoun jumps out at you? The I pronoun, no less than Eleven times, I, me, my, in that unit. All right. So, not only the beginnings of these words, the, the, the words of these units, are pointing out a structural segmentation or delineation, but also the way the apostle uses pronouns in these sections is indicating that these are unit, units unto themselves which means that the pronouns and their frequency are unto the theology of the apostle. And particularly when he has in 15 to 26, between 15 and 20, 12 occurrences of the he and him pronouns, he's focusing upon Christ, isn't he? That's the reason those pronouns are so frequent there. But he's focusing upon Christ in two different subunits. So what's the point of focusing on Christ in the first one? Well, we've already indicated the word creation is used. And what's the point in focusing on him in the second one? We said that the word resurrection is the second one. So, in other words, there's a theological drama or dynamic here behind this structural segmentation and delineation. What's the broad motif then? Does, do each of these units have a common motif? Do they have a common theme? Is there a common teaching or message that the apostle is attempting to communicate? Well, let's begin with 13 and 14. As you look at verses 13 and 14, does it have a common motif? What's the motif? What's the theme of verses 13 and 14? What would you say in one word? Deliverance, okay. Another word. Salvation, Salvation another word. Redemption. Redemption, that's the word he uses. 
But we're going to use salvation more broadly because it's a synonym for redemption. It's a synonym for being delivered as well. But the theme of verses 13 to 14 is redemption or salvation in Christ Jesus. All right, now we come to verses 15 to 18a. And what would you say the theme or motif of this unit is? Creation. Very good. It appears to be creation. We want to come back to this. But that's what the verse, verse 15, seems to lay out very clearly. All right. Now, what about verses 18b to 20? What's the motif or theme of those verses? Reconciliation and, very good, what word did we use before? Redemption. Resurrection. Resurrection and reconciliation. Are those saving motifs? Is that salvation language? Are you saved if you're reconciled to God? Yes. Are you saved if you're raised up from death to life? Yes, you're saved. All right, so this is salvation language in verses 18b to uh, 20. All right, what about verses 21 to 23? What's the motif here? What's the theme of those verses? It's reconciliation by the death of Christ in verse 22. So we've got a salvation motif once again. Salvation motif in verses 13 to 14. Salvation motif in verses 18b to 20. Salvation motif in verses 21 to 23. What about verses 24 to Verse 27, the mystery. What's the mystery, Ben? Yes. Let's go ahead, Kay. Yes, the salvation of the Gentiles. That's the mystery which has been hidden from the ages. Okay, so it's the mystery of the salvation of the Gentiles, of course, of whom the Colossians are some, are one. They are Gentiles. We are two. Okay, so we're included in this. So, each of these units, with the possible exception of 15 to 18a, has the same theme. Salvation. Being delivered from sin. But that salvation emphasis is going to be refocused. It's going to be more precisely analyzed. It's going to be wondrously drawn out of the mysteries hidden from the ages. This is remarkably profound stuff, but is all variation on a theme of the salvation that Christ brings, with a possible exception of that verse, that's that unit, verses 15 to 18a, which we have identified with creation. We want to come back to that after we return from our break. Now we want to return to verses 15 to 18a. And the identification of the theme there, which appears to be creation. Creation, as we would think about it, in terms of the world of Genesis 1. The all things of verse 16, created by him, namely by the firstborn of creation. But when we learn, when we look down at verse 20, we notice that phrase, all things again. Paul speaks in that 20th verse of the reconciliation of all things, which would suggest the fallen world of Genesis 3, not the unfallen world of Genesis 1. 
the implication then could be drawn from the apostle's use of the parallelism there that all things in the fallen world will be reconciled to Christ. Cosmic universalism. Or simply universalism. Reconciliation or salvation of all things created, particularly all moral beings created. Now, of course, this is not an uncommon opinion. There are many who have taken this position and have even named themselves universalists with respect to their denominational identity. There are others within the Christian camp who have argued that universalism is what the Bible teaches, and they would use this verse to demonstrate that. One of the names that is generally associated with this is the name of Origen. Origen was born in Alexandria, Egypt. He spent a good part of his life in Palestine and Syria and died following persecution about 254, 255, exact date unknown. Origen is arguably the most prolific Christian writer of all history. He was reputed to have written 6,000 books. Now, that may be apocryphal, but nonetheless, we do know that the corpus of his writings and his sermons extended to more than, to nearly a thousand works, if not more. Very, but the majority of those works have not survived. And what has survived is in Greek volumes, many of which have never been translated into English. That uh, deficiency in origin Research is being remedied very slowly because Origen's writings are being systematically placed in English translation and in French critical editions, but it's going to take centuries because there are hundreds of them. So this prolific Christian writer, predecessor to Athanasius of Alexandria, this prolific writer is alleged to have said that all moral creatures will be saved. The theory is labeled the apocatastasis. It comes from the Greek word that appears in that uh, 16th verse. I'm sorry, in that, <clears throat> yes, in that 16th verse, which stands for reconciliation. I take it back. It's in, in the it's in verse twenty. All right. Now, when an opinion is advanced, and you'll see this opinion re referenced in many modern commentaries and in many modern history of doctrine textbooks, <clears throat> when a suggestion like this is advanced one needs to be able to demonstrate on the basis of the person's own writings or own statements that that's exactly what he believed. Origen wrote a letter to his friends in Alexandria. He had moved away from Alexandria, as I indicated. He wrote a letter to his friends in Alexandria, which is part of what survives of his writings and has been translated into English for the first time seven years ago in a translation of Rufinus of Aquileia's Apology for Origen. Apology meaning defense of Origen against his enemies in his own time and afterwards. So here is a primary document. In other words, these are the words of Origen. These are the, the things that he wrote with his own pen to his friends in Alexandria. And you have the quotation there at the bottom of your outline. 
And this is what Origen writes. This is what he says. This is a direct quotation from his writings. They say that I claim that the father of wickedness and perdition and of those who are cast out of the kingdom of God, that is the devil, they say that I claim that the devil is to be saved. Now, you have just heard me refer to the fact that it is common coin. That's a common accusation against Origen, that he was a heretic on this matter. Okay, so they claim that I say the devil is to be saved. That's what they claim. This is something which not even a madman or someone who is manifestly insane can say. Origen was most certainly not a madman, nor was he insane. So the accusation that Origen believed in universal salvation falls upon the basis of evidence from a primary document, from the man's own mouth or lips or pen, we may say. I do not believe, Origen repeats, I do not believe that the devil will finally be saved and all those in perdition with him. Well, Paul agrees with Origen. That is, he doesn't teach universal salvation of all mankind. Origen didn't teach it because he was a student of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul didn't teach it. And the whole Bible doesn't teach it. But let's look at Paul, even within this epistle. So if you have your finger in chapter 1, turn ahead to chapter 3 and notice verse 6. It is because of these things, the Apostle writes, that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Does that sound like universal salvation? The wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Doesn't sound like cosmic universalism to me. And glance on down to verse 25 of that third chapter. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. Does that sound like universal reconciliation? Receiving the consequences of the wrongdoing that he has done? The next book in the Bible is 1 Thessalonians. Let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians 1.10. The end of that verse, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Rescuing us from the wrath to come means there are some that are not going to be rescued from the wrath to come. The wrath is going to come upon them. Doesn't sound like cosmic universalism. Or chapter 5, verse 9 of First Thessalonians. For God has not destined us for wrath, which means he has destined some for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. No cosmic universalism there. Finally, though you don't need to look it up, I point you back to Acts chapter 24, verse 15, where Paul is defending himself before Felix and proclaims that there is, and I'm quoting him here, a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, unquote. Now, that twofold resurrection that he refers to there is an echo of our own Lord Jesus' remark in John chapter 5, verse 29, where Jesus refers to a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. A resurrection of the wicked and a resurrection of judgment is not cosmic universalism, coming not only from the Apostle Paul, but from the highest authority, the Lord Jesus Christ, nor do I need to remind you of Matthew 25, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus says, Come, ye blessed of the Father, to his kingdom prepared for you. Depart from me, you cursed, to eternal fire. And the final reference from the Apostle Paul, the ninth chapter of Romans, verse 22 or the inspired apostle affirms 
that there are, quote, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, unquote. Thus, creation here in Colossians 1.15 cannot be the old creation fallen and lost in sin and death. Well, then what is it? This creation of Colossians 1.15 is the new creation in Christ Jesus. It is the new creation in Christ as the firstborn of that order. It is the world of the eschaton in both its visible and invisible aspects. It is the world, the new creation world, the eschaton in both the visible and invisible aspects. Visible, namely the visible church, verse 18a. Invisible, namely the thrones, dominions, etc., verse 16. It is that eschatological creation which reflects itself in those aspects on earth, even as it is in heaven. That creation which is even now and ever shall be in that new world without end. Now, I am arguing indirectly that Paul cannot be contradicting himself between verse 15 and verse 20 that the reconciliation of all things in creation is going to occur in the light of what he has written elsewhere and also in the light of what the scriptures teach elsewhere, especially our own Lord Jesus Christ. As my great teacher John H. Gerstner used to say, Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the whole Bible. Three to one. Three to one from Jesus of Nazareth, the divine Son of God. Count it up. He's right. The chief authority, then, for the doctrine of eternal damnation is not the Apostle Paul, though he supports it. The chief authority for eternal damnation is the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this new creation, there is no damnation. In this new creation, all things are reconciled. In this new creation, whether it's visible or invisible things, they are reconciled in Christ. Both now and not yet. So the only way that we can fit this section, 15 to 18a, into the pattern that the apostle has been unfolding. The only way we can fit this into the salvation theme, which is present in 13 and 14, 18b to 20, 21 to 23, 24 to 29. The only way we can fit 15 to 18a into that pattern, which he's unfolding, unfolding this pattern of redemption, is to say this creation is a redeemed creation. You see how structure solves a conundrum? You see how structure counters a theological heresy? You see how structure cancels out a popular opinion? Popular how? Well, not only the universalist denominations and people who take that position, who believe that all mankind will be saved, but the dominant theological mood and fad of the 20th century was a form of neo-orthodoxy which promoted this vigorously. I sat and listened to it for four years in a theological seminary until I was sick of it. One chapel sermon after another on 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You see, the whole world is going to be reconciled to God. It's being reconciled to God now. And in all those major denominations who accepted that fad called neo-orthodoxy or Bartianism, in all of those denominations, what happened to their mission programs? They died. Why would you raise money to send anybody to a mission field if everybody's already saved? If they're already reconciled in Christ. If God is reconciling the whole world in Christ. They don't need to know about it. 
They already are. So the only thing a missionary trip would mean is, hey, I'm telling you what's already true. You're already saved. Bye. Well, you don't have to raise million-dollar budgets to do that. In fact, today you could go on social media and tell them all that. But that neo-Orthodox fad dominated the mainline churches in the 20th century. It dominated theology across the boards of Protestantism and even Catholicism in the 20th century. It is faded now because most postmodernism has put it to death. Postmodernism has said neo-Orthodoxy was a sham. It was a fraud. Well, I like that about postmodern. I don't like, like most postmodernism in general, but they've got that one right. They got something right, yes. Some of them don't much like Immanuel Kant, and they've got that right, too. So I'm cheering them on that score. In any event, there was a pervasive theological influence in the 20th century which argued out of a concept that all men are elect in the elect man Jesus. All men are elect in the elect man Jesus. That's virtually a quotation from Karl Barth. That pervasive fad, which led to consequences, not just the breakdown in missions, but also the fact that, well, if you don't have a salvation message because everybody's already already saved, what is your message? Social action, that's what your message is. Take to the streets. Once again, the 60s with the explosion of the social action movements in various denominations. All right, now, if I'm right about my interpretation here, and full disclosure is in order, I'm reading a numerous, I'm reading numerous commentaries as I'm working on these presentations, and they all disagree with me. They all say this is creation in verse 15. Not new creation, creation. I'm not denying the use of creation. I'm simply saying it fits into the pattern that Paul's unpacking here. It fits into the pattern of salvation. And that's not fallen creation. That's redeemed creation. That's new creation. That's my argument. But, I'm very much in the minority on the point, which doesn't make me right, but it also doesn't make me wrong. So, there you have it. And it's uh, offered uh, for your edification and instruction. Now, I will come back to it when we tear these units apart. I'll attempt to more particularly justify what I pointed out here But I want you to see that if the structure is flowing in this salvation motif all the way through these verses of the end of this chapter, you cannot put chapter 15, verses 15 and 18a out of that pattern. They're in the pattern of the structure. And that message of this pattern is in verse 15 to 18a. Any questions or comments? You don't have to agree. I understand that, but that's what I think the apostle is doing because that's what the structure is doing. So I take my clue from the commonality of this unfolding theme of salvation and redemption. And I say that pattern interprets verse 15 as well. Oh, I see. I persuaded you all. All right. Let's pray before you change your minds. Our Father, we thank you for your word, inspired and infallible as it is. And we thank you for the opportunity to carefully think about what you inspired, namely the very Greek words that you gave to the Apostle Paul, inspired in his pen and his consciousness and in his thinking, We thank you that we can see in those words the pattern of his mind, the pattern of your mind, the pattern of the glory of your revelation in Christ our Savior. 
We praise you for that redemptive salvation. That is the heart and soul of our hope. That is the glory of our faith. That is the wonder of the grace that we received. Dear Lord, we ask that you encourage our hearts in that motif, that theme, that wonderful drama, that life. Encourage us, strengthen us, renew us. For, oh Lord, we confess without shame that you, you alone, are our Savior, Redeemer, and Comforter. And in that praise, we bless you for Jesus' sake, who has brought it all to us, as he brought it to the Colossians. Amen.